And so now, Lord, uh, we ask as we study your written word here in Acts, um, would you cause us to see your son Jesus in all of his glory as he is the light of the world, and even as the light of his love and your love shines into our hearts, would you transform us into your likeness that we too might be lights um, shining out to those who are in darkness. So we ask this for your glory and the glory's sake in Jesus' name. Amen. So, come on in. Um, last week, we were looking at, um, there's one there and one here. We looked at, last week, we looked at, anybody want to, you tell me, what did we look at last week? Does someone want to tell the group? How's that for a startle? Oh, I gave out the wrong one, Martha Ann. You want this one, sorry. Anybody want to tell us that last week? I see some serious. No. <laughs> Sorry. The answer is no. <laughs> How did you know we're being recorded? Why don't I tell you about last week? Last week we looked at um, Acts chapter 2. And do you remember what event we looked at in Acts chapter 2, which we celebrate in the spring every year? Pentecost. Pentecost, yes. Everybody, I grew up in a church where everybody would wear red on Pentecost, you know, and so, so I still wear, you'll still see me wearing red on Pentecost here, although this year I was not here for Pentecost, I was out of town, unfortunately. Um, so last week we looked at Pentecost, what happened at Pentecost, at the first Pentecost, and we looked about, looked at the event of what happened, and uh, Luke, our author, the author of the book of Acts, describes what happens in the first few verses there, but then what he does is, um, he, he kind of records what Peter said. And so we hear Peter in his sermon in the rest of Acts chapter 2 explaining what happened and explaining it in light of Scripture being fulfilled and prophecy being fulfilled in this moment. And then he uses this Scripture and prophecy to point to Jesus. And he says, this is actually about Jesus. And this Jesus Remember, this Jesus whom you remember from just a couple weeks ago because he died in Jerusalem during the Passover, this Jesus is Lord. So his, the content of his sermon is that Jesus is both the Messiah, the coming and expected king of the people of Israel, and then he's also the son of God. He is Lord over all. He died and God rose him from the dead. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And so that lordship of Jesus Christ is what um, brings about the fulfilling, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That um, by his lordship, now that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he sends his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, upon all those who believe in Jesus. So those first disciples of Jesus are sitting in the upper room. Remember, they're sitting there. Somehow they end up getting out of the upper room, but they're sitting in the upper room. And there, when they're sitting there, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And remember, we talked about the language of analogy is used, almost as though it was such an incredible experience that words could not describe it. It was like a mighty rushing wind. It was like tongues of fire came and sat on the apostles' heads where they were seated. And so the Holy Spirit descends, and in that moment of descent, um, they find themselves speaking then in languages that they never learned, in languages that as they suddenly are out of the house, the crowd hears each one of them talking about God in the language of their birth, the language that their mother spoke to them with while they were in their crib, in their mother's arms, that, that language, that heart language that they know better than any other language. In that language, they hear God, uh, they hear the disciples talking about what God has done in Jesus. They marvel. And there's this sense in which um, two things we highlighted last week, that in this downpour of the Holy Spirit, there's imagery used, right? Wind, fire, but there's also liquid language, language of uh, a great deluge, a torrential tropical rainstorm when the Holy Spirit falls. And this downpour, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is described in terms from, uh, it just described in terms of the prophecy of Joel, Joel chapter 2. That's how Peter interprets it. And there are three aspects of this downpour. The downpour is generous. It's not just a trickle. It's generous. It's a flood. 
it's um, final. Once the water is out of the container, you can't get it back in. It's spilled out, poured out. This is once and for all God's Holy Spirit poured out upon those who believe in Jesus. And the finality of that moment extends even to us today because we're still in the Messianic age, the age between Jesus' first and his second coming. We live in the same age of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the first apostles. And so the Holy Spirit is for us too today that as we believe in Jesus and put our trust in him, God's Spirit is available to us. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We are new creatures creatures, new creations, and um, the Holy Spirit empowers us then to obey God's law. And that's the aspect in which this is a giving of the new covenant. In the, for the ancient Israelites, they celebrated, or the, the Jews in the first century, what they did was they celebrated um, the, at the Feast of Pentecost, they celebrated the giving of the law that happened 50, um, 50 days after Passover, at 50 days after Passover was the Feast of the Pentecost and they associated it with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai because they wanted to celebrate that moment when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses in the desert after they'd been brought out of Egypt. And so it's so important and so neat that God uses this feast where they're celebrating the giving of the first covenant to give them this new covenant to establish this new reality in their own hearts. And I gave you the verses that we talked about last week from Ezekiel and from Jeremiah 31, talking about this new covenant and what it means. Um, In this new covenant, the Lord promises that he will write the law on people's hearts so that they won't need to remind each other to keep the law, but rather there will be an inner motivation to obey the law. That inner motivation comes from gratitude from having received from God and saying, wow, I'm so grateful for what he's done for me. And then there's a spontaneous and joyful giving back outwardly. So the third aspect of this downpour, remember I said it was generous, it's final and for us today, and it marks this giving of the new covenant. And then thirdly, it's universal. In quoting Joel, Peter is showing that this is not just for people for a specific task. Throughout salvation history, the Holy Spirit had been given by God to those who were specifically prophets, priests, or kings, or also that one artist that we talked about, Bezalel. (laughs) So prophets, priests, or kings, but here what we see is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on all those who believe in Jesus regardless of whether or not they are male or female, regardless of whether or not they have a high socioeconomic status or not, regardless even, as the book of Acts will continue to show us, of what their ethnicity is. And this is one theme all throughout Acts, that people of many nations are brought together into the kingdom of God, are brought together, melted together into the people of God, and that there is a miraculous unity despite that very distinctiveness that comes about through our own identity with um, our, our culture of birth, our ethnicity. Okay, so it's generous, final, universal. There's a new covenant. There's this expectation um, that the Holy Spirit is for all people, male and female, no matter what status, no matter what nation. And um, Acts is going to continue to show that to us. And there's one other aspect that um, this is something that Peter talks about in his sermon in chapter 2, and it's going to be important throughout the rest of the book of Acts, but we're going to see something that makes it um, applied into our passage for today. And that is that um, Peter keeps talking about the ascension of Jesus. Remember that the ascension marked this overlapping transition between volume 1 and volume 2, between Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke's first volume, and between the Acts of the Apostles, which is his second volume. So this overlap is marked by the same event, which he tells twice. He tells it first at the end of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, and then he tells it again in Acts chapter 1, and it's this overlapping event that makes um, volume 2 possible. And that is that Jesus ascended into, into heaven. It was like, and this is a very difficult topic to preach on. Um, every year it's sort of like, oh no, who gets, who gets to preach on Ascension Day? 
And this year, um, one of the things, I don't know, if, I've already referenced this a couple weeks ago, but um, Joe Gibbs had a great illustration in one of his sermons. I can't remember if it was Ascension Day or the Sunday after Ascension Day, but he talked about the ascension of Jesus as being like a bottle rocket that's shot up into the air, and as it goes, it's very limited while it's on earth, contained within this bottle rocket before you set a fuse to it. And then as the fuse goes to it, it explodes, and it has a far more reaching uh, calling, if you will, or it's seen by so many people. It's spread out because it's been shot up into the air. And in some ways, that's what's going on here with Jesus. Jesus is going, returning to the Father from where he came before he was born. Um, And there, his flesh, his raised body exists lives on now, even now, 2,000 years later, in heaven, at the right hand of the Father. And in his absence, then the Holy Spirit is given, poured out upon all of his disciples and all of his believers. So there's something about that exaltation. The exaltation of Jesus is what we say when we mean that he was ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father, because there's this notion of lordship and kingship over all the earth, kingship over all things. And this is why I put, um, if you look on your handout, I said Jesus exalted. And whenever, by the way, whenever I give a scripture reference, but I don't say the book, I'm meaning the book we're studying right now. So just in case you weren't sure, let me spell that out for you. I'm, I'm saying, oh yeah, Acts, because we're in Acts. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 36, does someone have their Bible open right now and you want to read that to us? Thirty-three through thirty-six. Or you could do thirty-two. Yeah, start at thirty-two. That's good. God has raised his Jesus this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. To the right hand of God, who has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and is poured out, which you now see and hear. For David did not appear to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool in your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus. Do you hear that prophecy? It's actually from the Psalms, from Psalm 110, that Peter is quoting. Peter is quoting what King David said in Psalm 110, that King David said this, and then Peter explains, well, David is not saying this about himself, and David, David is saying this about his offspring. David himself didn't ascend into the heavens, but he said, the Lord, the Lord God, said to my Lord, someone else. So David's sitting here saying, the Lord God said to this person over here, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Be exalted. Be lifted up. You are going to reign and rule over all your enemies. Um, And so one of the things that the first century Jews over time they understood this psalm to be a prophecy specifically about the Messiah about great David's greater son that David himself knows that God will put one of his descendants on his throne and that he will have dominion in a way that David himself never had that he will be Lord and King in a way that David never was so Peter is using that verse and understanding it and interpreting it in light of Jesus and saying that verse is actually fulfilled because Jesus is now enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he has poured out the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' lordship is what Peter is pointing to and what he's hoping that the signs, the visible signs of the Holy Spirit that the crowd is witnessing will draw them to believe, draw them to believe that Jesus is Lord more than just human but divine as well, exalted into heaven, Lord. And that that phrase, Jesus is Lord, that I put on your outline, that is one of the very first confessions of faith of the Christians. We confess our faith every worship service that we have at the Advent. On a Sunday morning, we confess our faith through 
either saying the Nicene Creed, if it's Holy Communion, or by saying the Apostles' Creed, if we're worshiping in morning prayer. And those two forms, creedal statements, I believe, we believe, were some of the earliest ways in which the church identified what is, Christian, what is the Christian faith. How do you identify yourself as a Christian? Well, even before the Apostles' Creed was formed, and we think that that might have been towards the end of the first century, early second century, even earlier than that, the first way a Christian could identify another Christian, and remember that at this time the Christian church is so embedded within the Jewish faith. The Christian church at this point, in Acts chapter 2 and in chapter 3, as we're going to see, they are all Jewish. And they're all Jewish with this one extra other belief in common that they share, that Jesus is Lord. And so their way of identifying them, each other, at this point they weren't experiencing persecution, but they will. Their way of identifying each other was to say, Jesus is Lord. And if someone else could say, Jesus is Lord, then they would say, oh, my brother, my sister, you believe. So this idea of Jesus being Lord was something that a non-Christian could not say. And it, you would see this also in other parts of the empire later on, especially in the midst of persecution. Um, one of the things that Christians refused not to say was to say that Caesar is Lord. They could, wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord, and they very often lost their lives because of it. So that basic confession, Jesus is Lord, is a way for Christians to identify each other. And that lordship of Jesus Christ is going to be important in what's going to happen in chapter 3 when we look at Peter and John in the temple and we see the miracle that's going to happen. Okay, any questions before we read our passage for today? Anything you want to highlight? Anything you're looking at and thinking, wow, what about this? Any challenges? Any, Deborah, no, I really didn't get that. Tell me what that means. Well, what we're going to do, we're going to read um, chapter 2, verse 42, beginning at verse 42, and we're going to go all the way to 310, which is actually less material than we've been doing the last couple weeks. So, so I'll start off. Remember to read just a couple verses, and then um, someone else can read as well. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Paul came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the night down. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wow. Anything you notice about that? Anything you hear echoed? If we had to describe what was the church like at this very infant stage, what would you say? What are different qualities that you hear 
Luke telling us about in these verses, both in the verses at the end of chapter 2 and even in this kind of very specific incident in chapter 3? What are some qualities that you hear echoed or repeated? Um, I'm just going to, we'll just call them out. I'm going to write them down so you can see all of them in one place. Qualities of the church, Mm -hmm. generosity. Yeah. Uh, If I can spell it. (laughs) Okay, what else? Yeah, so there's a sense in which the generosity involves a sharing of a miraculous level. Miraculous sharing. Sharing of possessions. What else? Amazement, awe. Yeah. And that's said twice too, right? And also, if you see the verse where you see this quality, shout it out so I can put it by it for for everyone's sake. Where did you find generosity, Gordon? Well, I actually didn't. I oh. <laughs> <laughs> Never actually mind. Generous. Never mind. Don't worry. It's not a pop quiz. <laughs> All right. What else? You can't be a hoarder. <laughs> what else? What else do you see? They were teaching and preaching. Teaching and preaching. And There's a yeah. And in specific. And and praying. In that first um, verse that we read, verse 42, yeah, there are a couple of different specific things. So it's not just teaching, it's apostolic teaching. What was that? Fellowship. Liz? Yes, fellowship. I'm going to put this up up here, fellowship. And that's in verse 42, right? Deborah, where it says um, that they broke bread, now that is not communion. That is just sharing food. Oh, we'll talk. We'll talk about that because they say it a couple different places. Where do they, you see them saying it? Well, in, in forty-six. Oh, yeah. What does it say in forty-six? They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Yeah. Oh, there's gladness and joy, right? Praising. Praise. And praise goes along with worship. You know, my Bible says fear instead of awe. Yeah, they're both good words. Fear, people don't like the word fear. We don't like the word fear today because we're like, well, I don't want my child to be afraid of God like you're afraid of the boogeyman. (laughs) Well, that's not the kind of fear we're talking about. We're talking about this awe. Awe at the holiness and the wonder the majesty and the sovereign power of God in our midst. And all throughout the Bible, the fear of the Lord is that, that almost, it is paralyzing because it's, you think, wow, who am I that I get to witness this? Wow, look at what God is doing. So it's got that wow aspect to it. I'm going to just put wow. What well, else? Yeah. Enjoying. I yeah. Mean, I think that the fact that they just enjoyed each other. There's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sincerity of heart. That's a great word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And they're genuine. Um, what ha- what's happening in their midst? What are some of the things that are happening in their midst? Miracles, which they call signs and wonders, right? So when we hear of the miracle in chapter 3, that's one example of what's going on all the time. And that happens in a very public way. Did we miss anything? Does anybody else see? The man that was laying from birth didn't expect to be cured. He wanted money. He wanted money. And what did they give him? They gave him Jesus, and he got healed. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Okay, so yes, exactly. Gross. And what does it say? How are they multiplying in number? What does it say about that, Gordon? And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Yeah, well, I think a lot of things, and maybe because I'm in ministry, I get to hear a lot of like, how are we going to grow this church? A lot of like, (laughs) 
principles for church growth. <laughs> like, let's be really smart about this and put into practice A, B, C, D. Well, it's not a formula. The Lord added to their number. Certainly, they, they are ready and willing and joyful about receiving new members into their midst. And that is really important because um, if, the Lord, if the Lord is bringing people to him, but the church is not ready or willing to receive new members, woe to us. You know that that we would not be willing to grow, but so there's that being receptive to growth. But it's the Lord by the power of His Holy Spirit that moves people's hearts to believe in Him. Okay, anything else? That's kind of a lot, right? <laughs> um, let's look specifically at verse 42. This is a classic verse that a lot of Um, I've been a part of a lot of church movements or different aspects within the church, especially younger um, church members. You know, when I was in seminary, it was sort of the cool thing to look at this verse and say, well, if we could just get back to this. And a lot of the more non-traditional churches have this mindset. If we could just get back to that moment, everything would be better. If we were just doing all of those things, then we'll be doing exactly what the Lord says. So scrap everything. Scrap the liturgy. Scrap our gorgeous building. Scrap this. We're going to, we're going to do exactly what it says in verse 42. And verse 42 certainly is, um, is, it is standard. It's a really neat breakdown of what the body of Christ involves. But it doesn't necessarily mean wiping out everything that we are doing now and have been doing for centuries. So looking at it, what we're going to look at, okay, there are four different aspects. Do you see the ones I put down there? So I'm going to, I'm going to erase all of this chaos. You know, even Peter wasn't scrapping the past. He was, he was <gasps> preaching here at the temple. Oh, my goodness, Mary, that's exactly what I was going to say. You beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, tell us where, tell us where, Mary. Where is he, where does it say well, this? It says he was, they were going up to the temple, but I see in my notes that he was actually in the temple square preaching. Yeah. And he was trying, in fact, I'm amazed he was allowed to do that. Oh, of course he was. Well, he's there. Yeah, there was a lot of expositional teaching and stuff going on in the courts of the temple in that day and age. And there's also, I mean, it wasn't like there's one pulpit and one person standing in it. Even in the synagogues, which are different than the temple, remember how Jesus gets up in Luke chapter 4 and he preaches right from the scriptures? Any male could do that if he'd been, if he'd been bar mitzvahed. You know, if he knew the Hebrew scriptures, he, any male could get up and read and then talk about it and sit down. So it's really, so that is not so much the problem, it's the content of what they're preaching that's going to get them in trouble. But what's really neat is that you're right, Luke is very keen on reminding us they were in the temple every day. They started at the beginning. This is the origin of the Christian faith is in the Jewish temple, and it's right there in the temple in Jerusalem. But let's look at these four, we're going to get back to that, let's look at these four things. I put them in the order in which... Um, in which Luke gives them to us. Well, what is the apostolic teaching? Verse 42, my translation says, they devoted themselves to the, apost- to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What would you say that means, the apostles' teaching? Who are the apostles? The twelve. The twelve, right. Remember how in chapter 1 they picked Matthias to replace Judas, to be one of the twelve. It's the number representing the tribes of Israel. Those 12 are very important. The 12 specifically are witnesses from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, chosen by him, by Jesus, to see all of what he was going to do and then to see him following his death and resurrection, to see him in his raised body as he was miraculously raised from the dead so that they could then bear witness to what God has done in Jesus Christ. So it is their witness that is um, the care, that gives us the most information about who is Jesus and what has he done. There are a lot of books out there about who's Jesus. I mean, a lot of, there's a, there's a 19th century and 20th century, uh, started at the Enlightenment, really, when everything started to go downhill, but there's this whole movement of looking at, well, who is the real Jesus? Will the real Jesus please stand up? And rather than looking at what the pages of Scripture tell us about Jesus, this movement says, well, clearly this can't be right. 
that's the basic assumption. <laughs> this can't be right because the Bible is primarily a book of devotion and spiritual truth, not history. This is what these detractors say and what a lot of biblical scholars will say. And so then they'll say, well, how are we going to find out who this real Jesus is? Will the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, please stand up? Well, what's so interesting about that is then they try to rely on all sorts of other unreliable resources. And uh, they go to, you know, the gospel of so-and-so and the gospel of so-and-so that never made it into the canon. Well, the reason those books didn't make it into the canon of Scripture is because the apostles and those who sat at the feet of the apostles, their first students and their second generation of students said, Peter never taught that. So this is an imposter. This work doesn't tell us about the real Jesus. So we can't include this in the canon of Scripture. Might be nice, might have some things that we want to believe about Jesus, but we don't know that this is what really, Jesus really did because this is not what the apostles taught us. Any thoughts about that? Any questions about that? So this, Holy Scripture, the New Testament, is the way to know Jesus. This is what we have of the apostles' teaching. We don't get to sit at Peter's feet and hear him directly teach to us, unfortunately. Darn. But this is pretty close. It's actually very close. And people will get really upset about the gap between when the events happened and when we think they could, be, could have been written down the earliest. It might have been as much as 10, 20 years later. They memorized so much. They knew so much by heart in a way that we have forgotten how to do. And so there, this um, Holy Scripture is trustworthy as being the testimony about Jesus, the apostles' testimony about Jesus. Any questions about that? Gibson used to say he wished they had never included Revelation. <laughs> oh, really? Did he? Why? Because it's so hard to interpret? Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many different interpretations. Mm-hmm. The best part to know about Revelation, and actually I was talking with Emily Menendez about maybe a new study on Revelation that will be helpful for this. Most important thing to know, God exists in his holiness in heaven. Um, Trial and tribulation will happen on earth. We don't know the specifics. We don't know the day or the hour. He knows. He's Lord. He's God. He's good. And Jesus is coming back. When Jesus comes back, it'll all be over. All the tears and sorrow and trial and we'll be with him, dwelling with him eternally in the New Jerusalem. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's a hard one. (laughs) Any other questions about what is the apostles' teaching? What does that mean? Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the fellowship. We're going to go back to this, but do you see in verse 44 and 45, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. Well, that verse, that word, it, that phrase in common is, is shared. There's the shared part of that phrase. It comes from the same word as the fellowship in verse 42. There's something about the sharing. What is this sharing that Luke is telling us about? And I'm going to go into that in a little bit. But let me just say that this sharing, the word for this sharing in fellowship is a word that you might see on a lot of different Christian ministries called koinonia. Have you seen that word somewhere? I think it's very trendy to have that be the title of a college fellowship or something like that. Koinonia. I probably have. Well, so this is... Yeah. Fellowship is this idea of koinonia. I'm going to go into it in a little more detail in a couple of moments, but suffice it to say that this is one of these four basic qualities, foundational qualities, of the body of Christ that's involved in being part of the church of Christ, part of the community of people who believe in Jesus. And we're going to see it again. It's referenced again in chapters 4 and in chapters 5. And I put those references there, but we're not going to look into those right now. The third thing that Luke mentions in verse, 30, in verse 42 is the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, now, there was some talk about this. What is this and what, is it, what do we think it might be? Certainly, breaking bread was a, a way of talking about 
fellowship over meals, so fellowship but with a shared meal together. And this is very important, and it's going to be even more important when we start to look at the Gentiles being brought into the church because Jews and Gentiles weren't allowed to eat together, or Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles. And so that's going to be important um, in terms of the spread of the gospel. But the breaking of bread, the way Luke says the breaking of bread and then the prayers suggests that this was maybe more than a common meal. Remember that at the Last Supper, um, Luke tells us in particular in his gospel that, that the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup that the Lord passed around, that the Lord shared with his disciples was after their meal, after the Passover meal. So it's in the context of a bigger meal, there's this symbolic meal. There's this sacrament shared. And so we think that what this means is that they are, they are breaking bread together in their homes. They're sharing food and having wonderful, some of my most favorite um, times that I can remember are shared meals. I mean, how many of you think of Thanksgiving with family? Sometimes that can be fraught with conflict and anxiety, but there are other times, I'm sure each one of you can think of a special meal that you've enjoyed with other people where there was joy and fellowship where your hearts were full and your bellies were full and you were glad. There is a sharing there, a joy there that um, the first church experienced and it was a taste of heaven, a foretaste of the messianic banquet because again, you know, Revelation, we will not only be with the Lord uh, eternally in the New Jerusalem, but we'll also be guests at the messianic banquet and the messianic banquet is a wedding feast. The marriage feast of the Lamb is what it's called in Scripture. There's this big, big feast waiting for us at the end. Um, when we die, at the end of the world, we'll get to feast eternally with Jesus, which is really great. So that's one of the things we remember about Holy Communion. Holy Communion is remembering back to what Jesus has done for us on the cross and looking forward in joyful anticipation to what we'll get to share in with him eternally. So there's that sense of in which um, Holy Communion is a moment of, is a timeless moment, looking back to the past, looking forward to the future. So they are participating in the breaking of the bread. So remember that this article, the, means a more specific breaking of the bread than just that, um, well, we had a turkey dinner together and it was really good. This is the breaking of the bread with significance. Um, so within that, we see then that they are obedient to the Lord's command, do this in remembrance of me. In Luke 22:19, there's that um, in Luke's gospel, he, he tells, said specifically that Jesus took the bread, took the wine, and said, do this, commanded that his disciples do this, share this bread and this wine in remembrance of him and what he has done for us. So they are obeying this command of Jesus. There's another command of Jesus in Matthew 28:19. Does anybody remember what that's about? <laughs> Anyone? You don't have to. It's fine. It's at the very end of Matthew's gospel. And Matthew is um, Matthew is telling us that Jesus has returned. He's risen from the dead and he is meeting with the apostles and he's telling them Go into, yeah, I see people flipping. Does anybody want to read it? Go into the world and baptize <coughs> in his name, right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you have it, Liz? No, 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 sorry, sorry. Sword drill. I'll, I'll see if I can get there. Kay's got it. Kay, save us. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you. So nice. So this is why we call Holy Baptism and the Lord's Supper the two dominical sacraments. They're the only two sacraments. They're the two ones that are commanded in Scripture by Jesus that his followers do. Other churches talk about other sacraments, but these are the two that are commanded by Jesus. That In our church we say these are the sacraments with a capital S the outward and visible signs of an inward spiritual truth. Um, so they're obedient to this. They're worshiping with the sacraments. And then the other thing in that, in that verse 42 is there's also a definite article in front of the prayers, which again 
suggest to us that this is not just, I'm sure they were praying as individuals privately in their homes, this is not just private homes, home prayer. This is not just that they were having a quiet time or even that they were praying as Christians within their Christian homes and gathering places, but it suggests that they were taking life and taking part in the prayer life of, of the people of Israel in the temple, that the prayers were the set prayers for the people of Israel in the temple. And they happened at very specific hours throughout the day, I think nine, but I might be speaking, I, I didn't research it to remind myself what they were, so I'm sorry. But multiple times throughout the day, they would pray. And there's, um, we're going to see a specific example of this in, in chapter 3, that Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock. And this was the specific hour of prayer that was following the evening sacrifice in the temple. So it was a set prayer. It was probably even liturgical. Sorry, but take that for non-denominationalism. They were probably praying liturgical prayers here that had a structure to them that involved specifically praying through the Psalms and other aspects of Scripture. So any questions about that? They're involved in prayer and worship. Um, and that's the force of these four. Apostolic teaching, which we would say is Scripture, um, fellowship, the sacraments, prayer, and worship. So these are... Um, the four pillars of what the church does, how we as a church come together, what the body of Christ involves. But there are different things to observe and notice about this. Well, it's balanced. There's structure and there's some spontaneous stuff happening too. They're worshiping in the temple with these prayers, but we also hear that they're in private homes, celebrating and having fellowship and worship with each other in a non-official way. It's formal and informal, structured and non-structured. And we do this in our church by the way we do things like this. This is so much more informal, right, than Sunday morning. Think about Sunday morning and our Bible studies on Sunday morning, especially the dean's class. I mean, this is a way more informal way of studying scripture, right? You can come in your jeans. It's great. And I won't even look down on you if you come in your pajamas. I'll just be jealous. <laughs> So we, we worship, we study in formal ways and in informal ways. Um, the, the body of Christ is both joyful and reverent. Remember that awe that we put up there, that there's joy and gladness, and that joy and gladness makes us giddy and sometimes um, very spontaneous, very um, responsive to what the Holy Spirit might be telling us in our heart of hearts to do. You know, whether it's, I heard of someone the other day who um, had someone, she was in the drive through line at Starbucks getting her coffee in the morning, and someone from the car in front of her paid her bill in advance. And so she got there, and they, she said, what do I owe you? And they said, oh, nothing. The guy in the front car said, you know, he, he wanted to treat you today, and he said, Jesus loves you, and he's from Church of the Highlands. She said, oh, okay, well, thank you. <laughs> so then she decided to pay it backwards for the person behind her. Um, so there's just this joyful, spontaneous, I'm going to do this, although I think that might be less, I think they have a thing where they do that. I think a lot of people might say, this is a great way to witness to your neighbors and a great way to be um, a loving Christian to someone around you. Um, but really cute, right? Really cute and joyful. Um, but then there's also a reverence to their worship, a sense of transcendence is what makes us reverent. Um, and remember that sense of awe and woe. I think we get that very often when we hear, I feel that, I have that feeling of awe when I hear about an answered prayer. Or you just think, wow, God, you did that. Especially when it's a really clear one that's really like we're praying for something big and God does it and you think, wow, I can't believe you did that. I am in awe of you. I also, though, and for me it very often involves chills. Um, goosebumps, as I say, or chill bumps, as you say down here. Chills. And I sometimes get this, very often I get this, when I walk into our church. I have the privilege of getting to be there downtown in the middle of the week, and one of my favorite things to do is to walk through, sometimes if I'm going to the food court across the street, I'll walk through the nave, and one of the organists will be practicing, and the lights are dark in there, so all of the stained glass is really bright and vibrant since the lights are off, and it's cold 
cool, at least in the music and the visual stuff. I just am in awe of the Lord, and I sometimes will just, I can't get out of here without getting on my knees and saying a prayer in thanksgiving. And so I'll just sometimes spend some time there because it's such a reverent place to be in. Just such a way to be in awe of our Lord. So there are many ways to do this. Joy and reverence characterizes the body of Christ then and now. There's this other aspect to the body of Christ. I would say it is balanced in that it's both inwardly aware and outward facing. You know, the church is not, I would say the church is a circle like this, right, with individuals all facing together, making one, one group, one circle. And yet, we're, we're, and there are moments where we're in together like this, like a football huddle, encouraging each other and saying, wow, yes, we're all together. Isn't this amazing? Isn't God incredible that we can share in this fellowship together? And I'm going to talk about a fellowship in a minute. But then it's also outward-facing, like a circle where everyone is facing outward, looking at um, those in need around us, looking at what God is doing and what he might um, ask us to do in obedience to him so that we can be aware of who might want, who um, is the Lord calling to bring into the circle, where are the empty spaces around us, the empty pews, and, um, and even those who don't know Jesus yet, and how can be, we be responsive and aware. If we're expecting God to bring new people into our midst, then it's a whole different outlook rather than saying, no, 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 um, we are who we are and that's it. But if we expect the Lord to bring new people into our midst, then we'll be ready to receive them when they come. So it's outward facing and evangelistic. And the evangelism um, that we're called to as a church is not occasional. It's not, well, this is the year where we're going to be really outward facing and evangelistic, or this is the decade of evangelism as the Episcopal Church has done at times. No, it's we are always evangelistic. We are always to have eyes facing outward for those in need around us, for those who haven't heard, for those who are coming to faith and need to find a place to call home. Okay, any questions about that? I'm going to skip Koinonia and go back to it before we look at the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we would basically see this event as a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5 through 7. Does anybody want to, if you really want to read it, I'll let you, although I just got to it. You've got it, Mary. Mary, sword drill. That's amazing. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Yeah, the sure. burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the hunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. So this is a promise that God makes through Isaiah to his people that there will be an end to the judgment they've been experiencing. <laughs> the exile of the people of Israel into Babylon was they believed a sign of God's displeasure with them for their lack of faithfulness. They did not obey him by worshiping only him. They worshiped other gods, and um, they forfeited their inheritance in the promised land, and he had to take them out of the promised land. And they labored. They, they said, why are you angry at us? And then they realized, oh, because of that, yes. You have every right to be angry. But they waited and they, and they longed for this end of judgment. And what's so beautiful about Isaiah is you get a lot of these prophecies of the end of judgment for God's people. Here he's talking about the ransomed. Those who are in other countries are going to be bought back and return home. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. And this was a promise that they believed would be fulfilled in the Messianic age. And so when this promise is fulfilled in Jesus, what we see is that in um, Matthew chapter 11 verses 1 through 6. We don't have to turn there. I'm just, just going to tell you what happens. John the Baptist is put in prison and he, or he's not yet put in prison. Never mind, maybe I should turn to it and then we can look. But John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, really, are you it? Are you the Messiah? John the Baptist gets second, second 
thoughts and he's having doubts and saying, are you really the Messiah? Because even John the Baptist, as a fallen human being, didn't have a full picture of what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah, the coming king. So he says, are you he or should we wait for another? And Jesus quotes to him from this passage in Isaiah 35, and he tells him that the eyes of the blind are being opened, that the ears of the deaf are being unstopped, and that the lame are leaping like a deer, the tongue of the mute are singing for joy. And he said, blessed is the one who does not fall away because of me. So he's encouraging John the Baptist. He's saying, look, these are the signs. If you're questioning whether or not I am Lord, whether or not I am the Messiah who is to come, just take a look around you. Do, do you see this prophecy fulfilled? And so what we see in, John, in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, is the continuation of the fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy was certainly fulfilled in Jesus' lifetime because we know that he performed so many signs and wonders. He healed so many people. He even told his disciples to go out and heal people. And I put down these passages from Mark Matthew and Luke about Jesus' disciples. We know he sent out first a group of the 12 and then a group of 70 wider disciples. And he sent them out two by two and he said, go and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come. What is the kingdom of God? But the place where God is exalted as king, the place where Jesus is Lord as Messiah. And so that place is not a geopolitical place. Um, That's a place right here in this room. Here is the kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom of God? This is the kingdom of God right now where Jesus is proclaimed as Lord. So they went out and they proclaimed that the kingdom of God was in their midst. And in Jesus' name, they, in faith, stepped out and um, performed works of healing. Signs and wonders were being performed through the disciples in Jesus' lifetime in a sense because they belonged to him and because they were proclaiming in his name. So isn't that a little bit of an echo of what we see happening here in um, Acts 3? This is a continuation of the kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord, and he is king, and it's being proclaimed now through his disciples and through their actions. And they with faith are acting boldly to bring people to know him, and the signs and wonders are examples, are proof that Jesus is Lord and that the kingdom of God has come. Any question about this? I put a little thing on there about first century theological significance of birth defects. Really, if someone was um, blind from birth, as we see in John chapter 9, there were all sorts of question about, questions about sin and judgment because in their mindset they believed that there was a one-to-one equation between sin and suffering of this magnitude. If you suffered in this way from birth, someone sinned. And remember in John 9 the question is, who sinned? This man or his parents, it made sense to them, well, his parents, and this judgment was enacted upon the child. And Jesus blows that equation out of the water. He says, your math is too simple. It is not so simple as that. Suffering is not God's judgment for sin. It is not a one-to-one relationship. Sometimes there are examples where we could say, yes, that suffering is definitely a consequence of your sinful action. A great example is a DUI. You get drunk and you get in a car, I'm not going to feel that bad for you when you get a DUI. I'm actually going to feel a little bit glad because we want you off the road, right? So that kind of disobedience and reckless sinfulness, it it can always be, it's always forgiven. Um, It can always be forgiven. But there are going to be some consequences in our world because we have ways of enacting justice. Thank goodness, because otherwise we would have so much chaos in society. So yes, there is some suffering that is a one-to-one cause and effect relationship to sin. But what Jesus is saying here is that, well, in chapter 9 of John, he's saying birth defects do not equal, are not the result of sin. They are the result of the fact that the world is a fallen place and creation is not perfect. And I think a lot of times, too, in our culture, we write things off and say, well, it's okay, it's been from birth. And there are some things that we say, well, that's, that's okay, it, God meant it to be that way because this was this way for this person from birth. Well, here's a great example of how Jesus says, no, I am going to transform in this life um, something that someone was born with that is not good. And so he does this, he does it in John chapter 9, and this idea of healing someone who has had an ailment from birth, what it does is it points to Jesus' lordship as lord over all creation. Because there are other healers and miracle workers in that day and age who could do miracles. 
Um, but the miracles that they did um, were lesser than this kind of miracle. So in this first century mindset, to see someone who was, had a defect from birth be healed is a sign that God, the Lord over all creation, is in their midst in a very mighty way. So it's a sign of an even greater work than just a mere, while this person um, was crippled because they tripped and fell as a child. Now this is even greater than that. He was born this way. Wow, the Lord of all creation is present in our midst, recreating this person's body. Okay, any questions about that before I go back to Koinonia? So again, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, is an example of one of the signs and wonders that is being done in the midst of this newborn baby Christian church in Jerusalem. Um, One of the other aspects, going back to verse 42, is this fellowship. And this is such a great idea and something, I mean, it's a great idea on God's part. Good job, God. But it's a a beautiful idea um, because it's so true and it's something we crave as human beings something we desire and something that God meets our need for in the church so I'm going to talk about that but first um, we're going to do a little bit of a sword drill if who will look up first John 1 3 for us anyone raise your hand so I know that you're looking it up because I'm going to tell someone else to look up another one okay, I'll look yeah Trudy will look that one up will someone else look up second Corinthians 13 14 Okay, Dorothy's got that one. Thank you, Dorothy. Um, can someone else look up 2 Corinthians 8, 4? Yeah. Kay has got it. Thank you, Kay. And how about 2 Corinthians 9, 13? Okay. All right, go Mary Kay. Whoever's got um, 1 John, go ahead and start reading it if you've got it. Uh, we declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is what, Trudy? That's First John 1, 3. So, we read it again? Um, we declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Great. Thank you. Okay, someone want to read the next one from 2 Corinthians 13, 14? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Ooh, good one. Thank you, Dorothy. Okay, the next one from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians uh, 8, 4. Go, Kay. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, that's the same word. It's sharing, but it's uh, translated sharing, but it's the same koinonia word. Say it again, will you please, Kay? Yeah, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Okay, and what, who has the one from chapter 9? Yeah. yeah. Under the test of this service, you will glorify God by your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Yeah. So here we're talking about a monetary contribution in generosity. So this word used multiple times means multiple things. Wouldn't we say that this is a direction of up and down Um, This up and down fellowship or koinonia is with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. It is a sharing, a unity, joy back and forth like arrows going back and forth like this. Thanks be to God. The fellowship is also horizontal. It's with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The fellowship is with us, with the apostles, and fellowship with Sharon, fellowship with Judy, fellowship with Lenora, fellowship with Mary Kay, fellowship right here in this room in a horizontal way. So there's this vertical fellowship back and forth and a a horizontal fellowship as well. And this vertical fellowship is what fills us up with all joy because of God's grace given and extended to us. And it's out of that 
fullness of joy that we have with him that we are then free to share with each other in joy and gladness, share of our hearts, share of our um, fellowship and hospitality, share even, and this is how um, Paul is talking about it, share of our resources with others as they have need. So this sharing of resources financially comes out of having received from the Father and out of the joy of sharing relationally with other Christians. Um, So this is something a lot of churches will find that people will come to um, church because they're, sorry, that clock is slow. I'm going off that clock. Well, sorry. I'm going to just finish this sentence and then you can go. You're all like, oh. Um, This joy and this fellowship is what is so attractive to people. How many of you, you if you were church shopping at one point, thought, well, they're nice. They're just, I feel welcomed. I feel at home. I feel good in this church because I'm around people that make me feel good. Well, that's true. That's a way that people know that this vertical fellowship is happening. The vertical fellowship is the first part, but it's made manifest outwardly in the way we share with each other, the way we're joyful in each other's presence, the way we welcome each other. And that's then what makes other people very often um, get in the church. And then they experience that vertical fellowship and are transformed into being those who want to share horizontally with others. So let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the koinonia that we have in you. We thank you, Lord, that you have united yourself to us. You bought us with the price of your own blood. We are now sheep of your own flock, lambs of your own redeeming. We belong to you, and your name is written on our hearts. You know our name, and you call us by name. And so even so, we delight in that fellowship with you. And strengthen us, Lord, as we have fellowship with each other, as we share with each other as sisters in Christ and brothers in Christ. Lord, would you increase our joy and our fellowship together so that others might see um, where it comes from, that it comes from you. And they might say, ooh, I want a taste of that. Um, So we ask that you would do this for your glory's sake. In your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.